Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast for the second half of the Lost Gospels discussion. We'll begin with the introductions from last time, and then pick up where we left off in the discussion. Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. We're in Jersey again tonight, so instead of Ryan, you've got me, Nate, coming at you with this week's Hopalicious content. And we definitely have some great content tonight. But first, we have a few announcements to share. So we'll be hosting another edition of Altruist this fall, right here in Montclair, New Jersey, just 20 minutes outside of New York City. So if you missed out on Altruist in Denver back in May, definitely join us in November. Uh, And if you're wondering what Altruist is, it's a one-day interfaith event where we'll have leaders from different traditions like Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all getting together for panel discussions, table conversations like what we do at pubs and breweries every week at our various brew theology chapters around the country, and some excellent craft beer provided by Jersey's own Ghost Hawk Brewing Company. Tickets are on sale at Eventbrite, and if you're listening to this on or before December 15th, There are early bird pricing specials going on right now, so don't miss out. Proceeds for the event um, will go towards the Montclair Sanctuary Alliance. And by the way, if you like what you hear on this podcast, you'll be happy to know that we brew this kind of content live and in person weekly, bi-weekly, or semi-monthly in over 10 chapters all around the U.S. If you want to join the conversation, head over to brewtheology.org to find a chapter near you, and if there isn't a chapter close by, We'd love to help you start one. Just reach out to Ryan and Janelle on the Brew Theology website, and they'll get you set up with some training. You can also give us a shout on social media. We're on at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram, and at Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. Lastly, if you'd like to support the interfaith work we do here at Brew Theology, you can find us on Patreon, and for as little as $1 a month, you can join us in our efforts to help make the world a better place by developing interfaith community through healthy, eclectic, and meaningful conversation in pubs and breweries around the country. Just swing by patreon.com slash brewtheology to donate. We're joined tonight by the Reverend John Rogers, fellow brew theologian and associate pastor at First Congregational Church in Montclair. John graduated from Union Theological Seminary just across the river in Manhattan and currently does a lot of work with youth around New York City and is an outspoken activist fighting for racial justice, immigrant rights, and LGBTQ equality. Tonight, however, we're talking about another one of his passions and areas of study, the Lost Gospels. So brewing theology with us tonight are Kelly. Hello. Matt. Cheers. (laughs) And Vicky. Hey. And now, we'll pick up the discussion where we left off. I have a question about like to what extent some of these ideas have have actually made its way into the tradition. Like, for example, when I read something like the prologue to John, I'm like, that sounds very Gnostic to me. Or, you know, there's other things. There's little like, are there traces of this stuff through through uh, throughout the New Testament? Oh, definitely, and within Paul, Um, a lot of these elements are are in uh, Paul's letters, but. Yeah, and we assume with the prologue of John that it's referring to Jesus. When when you engage with the Greek, it really that's not clear at all. That it really could be another hymn, it could be some text that is used as the prologue that like so much of the gospels um was placed in there from another source cut together. Okay. Pieced mm. together. <clears throat> cut and pieced. I like this one. Um, 
Jesus said, recognize what is right in front of your face and what is hidden will be revealed to you. For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. Because I feel like a lot of like, at least like in my upbringing of like going to church occasionally, um, it was like just, you know, the mystery of faith. Like you can't know God's plan. Mm-hmm. There's, an, you know, there's a lot of things that you will never understand. And like, that's just how it's supposed to be. And then it, this is literally just like, recognize what's in front of your face you idiot like just look at literally what's in front of you and then you'll like understand so much more it doesn't match the name gnostic right? yeah <laughs> the hidden mystery that just right. doesn't match right it's like it kind of resonates with the whole seek and ye shall find sort of thing mm. you know what i mean like and that's this kind of gets back to the question i was asking you before about like hidden knowledge right like it's yes it's in front of your face but like do you really do you really see it and so, like, this is the idea of, like, not only doing, like, textual interpretation, um, but, like, reading the world as a text. And, like, that there's – the yeah. world is concealing something from us. And if we if we just kind of, like, interrogate it more uh, intensely, it's going to kind of give our secrets to us, give give up its secrets to us. And and so I think there's a sort of, like – I don't know if it's too strong to, to suggest, like, a proto-scientism or something like this um, – but there seems to be like a sort of like a technological connection to all this, right? The whole idea of like secret knowledge and um, the way that secret knowledge lends its gives um, gives us the ability to like like create technologies and stuff like this that give us greater knowledge. I don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And like it makes me think like the era we're living in right now is like super gnostic. <laughs> oh, completely, completely. Mind blown. You know, like trying to escape. Like people want to go to Mars and shit. Like why do you want to go there? Why do you want to go to Mars? Right. <laughs> right. Why? It's like 70% of our oceans have not been explored yet. We have, we don't know about what's literally in our own oceans. Why do you want to go out into outer space? <laughs> Forgive the, the name of this book because it's really great, but there's a book called The Gnostic New Age by a scholar named April DeConnick. Hmm. And what she does is she takes our cinema, and, like the Truman Show, and she uses oh that as a, <laughs> as a jumping off point to really wrestle with all of these Gnostic themes. Yeah. And it's brilliant. And it, and it really illuminates exactly what you're saying, Matt, that we're wrestling with the exact same themes that they were wrestling with there. Yeah. It's like a hatred, yeah. like a hatred or so we just want to, we just want to get out of here or something like this. Like we fuck. All right. We fucked up the world. Right. Let's go somewhere else and fuck <laughs> that place up. We'll you just know, do it all over. It doesn't not, matter. Let's not let's not let's like, not actually transform ourselves. Right. You know like I mean? address the problems that are at hand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and isn't it but isn't it so kind of ironic that in the text that we've lifted up, it seems like the Gnostics are trying to address that as like a human tendency, and yet exactly what you described is a Gnostic stereotype that they just want to escape, escape. the world. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a. It seems like a double-edged sword in a way. Mm. So let's talk about the Gospel of Mary for a bit, because we were touching on this before of how you know in our churches, and I realized we didn't do this at the um, at the beginning, but I mean we all. Co- I think for the most part we all come from a Christian background of sorts. I know Vicky, you said your your background is Catholic. Mm-hmm. Matt, you come from more of an evangelical background, it's more Methodist. Or, well, yeah, more Methodist. I know Kelly, you. Uh, came from the Methodist mm-hmm. church. Um, I came from a fundamentalist evangelical background. And John, you're like 
the heretic of the bunch. <laughs> Church of Christ, born and raised. Born and raised. <laughs> Some of us had to convert into United. Every day. <laughs> yes. Um, and in, in our spaces, like in the Catholic Church and in um, evangelical circles, I find that women's voices are so often suppressed. We're not, the, we don't see them at the seat of power. We as men are not listening to them. Um, I think, um, what was interesting at the pub last night had a, co- somebody mm-hmm. brought up, I think it was Mark who had brought mm-hmm. up that, you know, well, you know, churches are made up of, you know, majority women. Yeah. So, so he was talking about um, the Catholic experience. Yeah. And he said there are more women within the Catholic church than there are men. But that's even true of the evangelical church because I mm. come from an evangelical megachurch and there are far and away more women there than men. But if you look at the pastoral staff, right. it's all a bunch of middle-aged white dudes. Yeah. And the women are the children's ministry leaders and the administrators. Yeah. Well, Mike brought up a really good point um, yesterday and he said, or maybe it was today after we had that meeting and he said, um, you know, I think his name, his name is Mark. Yeah. He had a really good point. Like Mm -hmm. there are a lot of women in the Catholic church Uh, and they lead a lot of the ministries like every, like the financial ministry, the children's ministry, um, you know, the, the outreach you know, maybe palliative care ministry, um, end of life kind of care. Like they, they will go out of their way to help the church. But at the end of the day, you still can't be a priest. Like a mm-hmm. woman cannot be a Catholic priest. It's very heretical. It's mm-hmm. very, um, it's wrong, mm-hmm. um, to a certain extent. And until women are seen as, you know, equal in value as men, you know, that's not going to change within the church. And so that's one of the reasons that I left the Catholic church is just because there, there's no place for women within a position of power. And I don't see myself, um, like I don't see people who look like me Mm -hmm. on the pulpit talking. That is just so not in the line with this tradition of Mary that, that we haven't had right here. She is, she is standing up. She is talking. She, Mm -hmm. she is leading. She's a badass. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, this is fun. The description that you have here, um, it said that the gospel of Mary is the first and only known gospel whose main figure is a woman. Uh, this figure is most likely Mary Magdalene, who is portrayed as a confidant of Jesus, someone knowledgeable of Greek philosophy and a leader of the disciples after Jesus leaves them, which kind of flies in the face of a lot of the stereotypes of Mary Magdalene or Mary of Magdala. Um, However, can, we, can we just talk about what we thought of Mary Magdalene before reading this? Because, yes, like, that's relevant like, to this conversation. For me, I thought she was like a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know anything else about her. Again, bad Catholic, so like, I, my doctrine isn't is a little shady. But I thought she was a prostitute. Not that there's anything wrong with sex workers, but in the church, like, she was definitely like lesser than, right. in my opinion, and not nearly like she was definitely not a disciple and she was definitely not like in confidence with jesus like jesus was probably like you know i feel bad for you so i'll let you like be at my feet right be at my feet washing washing with your hair hair. exactly you know exactly and there's a pope in the sixth century who said that that mary magdalene was a prostitute (sighs) and that just (laughs) stuck and And actually in, in 1969 the church said 
we apologize. <laughs> we apologize for saying that. But you know, like any one of these rumors on the internet, once it's out there, once the apology is given, it, um, doesn't it doesn't matter. have to see. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. It's already out you there. You can't walk it back. Right. And exactly. if you were ignorant of it, you were just ignorant. But it, this text sort of says there were people who knew. They knew. And it was intentional. Mm. It was intentional. Yeah. And the disparaging of her was intentional. And there's something going on in terms of Mary Magdalene in a number of these texts that are in the Nag Hammadi. Not only is she central in the Gospel of Mary, but there's another text called the Dialogue of the Savior. There's a number of texts where she really is in this kind of inner, inner, inner circle with Jesus, like James and John are in the canonical Gospels. That's wild. James, John, and Peter. Peter, yeah. Yeah. So, BFF. (laughs) That kind of, that really does fly in the face of a lot of what we've been spoon-fed through our traditions. I mean, even the thought, it's, it's interesting looking back on it now because I'm, I'm far enough removed from those days, but I'm, I'm thinking back to my own experience of, um, what, like when the Da Vinci Code came out. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and like the church I grew up in was, it was a fundamentalist church and anything that smelled of heresy, like they said, stay the hell away from that. And so, of course, the Da Vinci Code comes out, and we weren't even allowed to to look at it, let alone open the open the book and that read movie's it. about eating babies, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Don't watch it. <laughs> I never saw it. I remember like the opening sequence was like someone having a baby on a stool, and I was like, "Can't watch this." Is that part of the movie? I don't remember that. Is isn't it? I didn't like, see the movie. Oh, isn't it? Now. Isn't it in like the first five minutes? Is someone like squatting over like five a birth minutes? stool? What? And then I, I turned I it off, that. and I was like, "This is horrible." So that's all I remember. About I feel like that's going to be our homework now. We've got to watch the Da Vinci. Code. Watch it be some other movie, and like me, just look like a jerk. <laughs> But even then, I feel like yeah. now, like with with the topic that no, we're I think I think it was because I think it was talking about the descendants of Jesus and like uh, this is a descendant of Jesus and like this is how he was born. Go. John, you wrote here that the theme of the Gospel of Mary um, is the Son of Man or the Child of Humanity exists within you. Uh, can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? I think Vicky spoke to it really beautifully earlier, um, but. The middle section of the Gospel of Mary is Mary basically having a vision. And she goes through all of these, what they call the power of wrath. But then after she goes through all of these kind of like trials, almost like it's like the Tibetan Book of the Dead or the Egyptian Book of the Dead. But after she goes through all of these powers of wrath, she um, ends in what they call the place of rest. And then she rests in silence. So to me, it's that there, if we can get past all of the hangups, all of the things that we don't want to face, all of the shadow side, that this life-giving, what they call in the um, Gospel of Thomas as a bubbling spring of life is within us too, that this life-giving divine force is at the root of the human experience. Yeah. Like if you go through enough therapy and you deal with your demons, you will find God. And there's so many cool things, but there's so many cool things. Take your clonopins. (laughs) I mean, there's so many cool things with this that uh, one of the first people who um, had one of the codices after they were discovered was Carl Jung. Mm. So there is something oh, deeply. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, when you start saying shadow work, I'm like, wait a minute. 
And Toni Morrison has written about Thunder Perfect Mind. Mm. Um, it does seem very Toni Morrison, though. Which is an which, awesome thing to say. Yeah, which is really <laughs> rad. So in the Gospel of Mary, we have um, this this excerpt that you shared with us. Um that said, the blessed one said, beware that no one lead you astray, saying, look over here or look over there, for the child of humanity is within you. Um, Mary said, let us praise his greatness, for he has prepared us and made us humans. Levi said, we should clothe ourselves with the perfect human, acquire it for ourselves, as he commanded us and proclaim what the good news. What does that mean? I, wow. You know, it's interesting. I kind of, um, something that I've been playing around with uh, a little bit is, um, anytime that Jesus refers to himself as the son of man mm. to translate that as the human one, um, okay. because what he was, I think, and, and of course it's obviously speculation. Um, I read somewhere that, that an interpretation of that could simply be that, um, Jesus viewed himself and his mission as to, um, enlighten people as to true humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, that when he would refer to himself as the human one, he, what he was really saying was, um, I'm trying to reveal to you the depth of what it means to be human. And this mm. is what it looks like. This is what true humanity looks like. It's not about necessarily about Jesus being the son of God, as though that were some kind of official title of, of his, but simply that he was saying, this is what it looks like to be human. So in in that case, with this text here, you know, the child of humanity is within you. The depth of what it means to be human is within you. Maybe that sounds circular. I don't know. That's not an essentializing of what it means to be human, right? Right. As like a stable category. Oh, no, no, I don't think so. Yeah. When we look at the moment that the Gospel of Mary is situated in, Jesus has been crucified. The disciples don't want to do anything. They're all scared. And this is what Mary says, um, in order to actually have them do what Jesus was saying, come on guys, let's do, which is just simply teach and heal. So to me, um, I love what you said about Jesus coming to have us actually be in touch with our humanity because this road that Jesus is leading them on, or actually that Mary is leading them on in this moment is suffering you know again Mm -hmm. it's it's a buddhist way of looking at the world but life with life there is suffering but there's also so much beauty and so and there can be so much purpose so actually embracing getting involved in the world not hiding from the world um to me uh that's my interpretation of what she's saying about being human there's also getting into the mess absolutely (laughs) and there's also like a very individualistic sort of thrust to this Right, like, don't listen. Look, don't listen to anyone who says, "Oh, we've got the answer over here. We've got the answer over there." No, no, no. You got to figure it out yourself. It's a, it's a. It places the responsibility for determining um, what it means to be human on you. Mm. You know, it says it exists within you. Yeah, and to go back to what you said about um, you said Jesus, like Mary, Mary wanted everyone to to teach and heal, go out and, and heal. It makes me think of like. My own, like I'm a teacher by trade, and um, you're a nurse, right? Yes. And we're both women. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So mm. teachers mm. and healers in modern day era are women. Like 
by and large, yes, there are men, male nurses and there are male teachers, but it's a, it's considered a female profession. And, um, at least in my experience as a public educator, um, it's, it's considered a profession that is lesser than like I'm a science teacher. I could have gone to school for engineering. Still might do that, but, um, I don't make enough money, you know, for the amount of work that I put in. Um, I don't, I can't speak to nursing specifically, but, um, I know that, you know, traditionally, and not to get on a tangent, but caring work, work that is caretaking, um, that might be seen as like work that Jesus would have done back in the day is not necessarily appreciated because it's considered, um, it's, it's like women's work. Like teaching is women's work nowadays, at least elementary school teaching. Rather than building up the hierarchy of the mm-hmm. institutional church, right? Which exactly. would be valued. Right. And male work. Anything that's considered traditionally masculine typically um, is paid better. You get better money for doing that kind of work. I don't know if any of that resonates with you, but probably not at the same level that it that it does with you, but it does it makes it makes a lot of sense. And it's almost a mirror of what of what Jesus kind of went through this sort of uh like he was looked down upon traditionally when we think of the stories about jesus he was looked down upon in society he was kind of cast away he was eventually murdered executed then we look back and we paint that as what it means to be truly human and then those aspects teaching and healing then become what is sort of looked at as quote-unquote feminine john you're nodding so much yeah (laughs) i love what both of you are saying and i and i think that what is difficult to categorize is often demonized so jesus was going to be demonized from the beginning because here he is in a male body but do living in a world and in a way that is associated with the female right Mm -hmm. um he is God's son in many interpretations and in the Philippians hymn, he's the lowest of the low, takes on the form of a slave, right? Mm. right? And that's why I think the cross is such a central image when it comes to Christianity, because it says that all things can be reconciled and all the ways that we want to divide things into good and bad and sacred and secular, male, female, that there's actually a reality that's beyond all of that. Mm. But when we want to just kind of self-protection, have our judgments, be right, it, 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 it doesn't allow for all of that humanity mm. to, come, to come through. Another thing that I found um, in, in this particular passage in the Gospel of Mary that kind of fucks with our traditional Christian interpretation of sin, you know, even... even um, Levi saying we should clothe ourselves with the perfect human. It's almost like the depths of what it means to be human is this sort of elevation of flesh, of humanity, that humanity isn't inherently sinful, but that there, there is an inherent good and beauty to the human condition in the midst of all of its messiness. Um, and I found that to be pretty fascinating um as well and i know that 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 really sort of messed with me because i grew what do you think they mean by perfect human because that's what's kind of tripping me up right now well i mean in the tradition christ is thought looked upon as the perfect human right so they're just saying take on the 
likeness of Christ. It's pretty standard Christian stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You know, become the archetype, you know. Christ-likeness. What what would Jesus do? Like WWJD, bracelet, yeah. Yeah, but what I like about this is is it, it, it sort of put it on like a garment, meaning... Whoop. (laughs) <laughs> it, what I like is that it, it leaves what is underneath the garment an open question. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? So it's like um, it's you're you're putting something on, but it's not you're not essentializing what it means to be human. You're you're allowing what's human to pass through this garment or pass through this mask and be kind of uh, communicated through it. Do you think it's like fake it till you make it? Like put the garment on until you become that or do you think that's impossible i don't know Hmm. but it's not a call to be godlike it's a call to be more fully human Hmm. yeah though i think there's some other texts that do say to be (laughs) not this one in particular well he and he and the father are one so it's the same shit well (laughs) not here I don't think in this one. That's all right. I'm okay to like mix and match. (laughs) (laughs) We've been doing quite a bit of that. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, existing in human community, uh, there's a lot of times that we're. I feel like my language. We're called to show compassion when inside we might not be feeling very compassionate. Yeah, you know what I mean. So there's a way of interacting with one another that um, allows for a lot of grace. Even if in our head, as human beings, there's going to be judgments. You know, it's, 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 I loved what you said, Matt. I think that it allows for the human experience to be um, going on um, multi dimensionally. Uh, so Mary stands up and inspires the grieving and immobilized disciples who lack direction after Jesus' death. Um, then, after Mary describes how the soul can ascend to God, the disciples are encouraged to teach and heal. However, some of the gospel, uh, some of the disciples protest with this. And here's your excerpt. Um, but Andrew responded and said to the brothers and sisters, "Say what you will about um, what she has said. I do not believe that the Savior said this. For certainly these teachings are strange ideas." Peter's res- Peter responded and spoke concerning these same things. He questioned them about the Savior. Did he really speak with a woman about? our knowing about it? Are we to turn around and all listen to her? Did he choose her over us? <laughs> There's clearly a disdain for uh, for the feminine in, in the disciples' language. What stands out to me here, though, is um, mm-hmm. that these characters that are so lauded by the church, obviously, um, which... <laughs> Actually, kind of going back on that, like you look through the scriptural, uh, through through even the canonical gospels, and um, the disciples are not really painted in the best light. Um, and here, this sort of a con- continuation of that. Um, but in this case, the target isn't necessarily Jesus and his teachings; it's a woman. And I think that that um, says a lot about dynamics within early Christianity that there were these real kind of power struggles. I mean, one way to look at early Christian communities is that um, different communities associated themselves with different disciples. Mm. Um, And that there were real kind of, again, power struggles. And this might be an overinterpretation, but in a number of these texts, there is a tension between Peter and between Mary. Mm -hmm. And what we 
now know as institutionalized Christianity is founded on the rock of Peter. Right. So again, that and, uh, initial... And, and here we yeah. have Mary weeping. Mary weeps. Yes. And I think this gospel, what a blessing just to be able to weep with her. Yes. An acknowledgement yeah. of her history and what how it went down. Yeah. Yes. And to just be able to grieve. Yes. And to grieve in a in a gospel-y sort of way. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, to what you were just saying earlier, how um, you know, different there were different factions that that appeared that were following, and you said it might be an overinterpretation, but I don't know. I, I see that evidence um, throughout Scripture, even the way that Thomas as a character is painted in the canonical Gospels. Um, uh, you you kind of wonder if that's some of that is written in to sort of paint the followers of Thomas in a particular way. Yes, that these are the ones that doubted. These are the ones that uh, like. Is isn't it true? I think I, I heard somewhere that. Um, the uh, the followers of Thomas um, didn't necessarily believe in the the physical bodily resu- resurrection of of Jesus. Is that something I'm I'm kind of reading from somewhere uh, illegitimately? No, um, there's a number of texts that are often deemed Gnostic that see the resurrection as more of a vision. Mm-hmm. That it isn't as much just completely based on the flesh and the blood, but that you could have an understanding or an experience of Jesus's presence um, that wasn't literally touching the person. Um, and that was very threatening for those that were very much believed that the only way a resurrection could happen is if there was, you know, you, you touched, you touched the side and, and it was, and it was flesh and bones. Mm. Okay. But even canonically, you could see the Jesus before and Jesus after is different. Yeah. I mean, he, he appears in rooms. Right. He can just move around places. Um, you know, he could be a gardener and all of a sudden then you see him when he says your name. So, I mean, the risen Jesus is very different from the pre- Mm-hmm. pre-crucified Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think where I was going with that was how But it allows for a non-literal It does. non-physical yeah. resurrection. It allows It allows for that, but you kind of wonder if a lot of these leaders in the church in in the church the early church were trying to paint a particular narrative and had an agenda and anything that went against that agenda they were trying to squash. So a group that was so overtly non-conforming to the idea of a bodily, physical resurrection, um, their writings and their voice was kind of suppressed mm-hmm. by the early church. And But yet you see the evidence of, of that kind of openness of interpretation in the canon, but those were acceptable because those maybe those the followers of those leaders like Peter and the followers of. Uh, but those texts weren't the focus texts. You always have the doubting Thomas. That's the one you can pull off the top right. of your head. The right. other stories I have to drag up. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I loved what you said about grieving, because to me, when you encounter these texts, they, they're full of beauty. There's all, they're also full of some moments that you're like, what are they talking about? There's other texts that you're kind of like, I can understand why they stopped reading that. You know, <laughs> it's not that it's like, oh, the Gnostics are better than the canon, you know, or the Gnostics are better than the orthodoxy. My team is better. I think that it's allowing for there to be voices at the table. 
mm-hmm. ultimately. And the fact that so many voices aren't heard, and then to look at the way Christianity developed and that there, it is mirrored that women, as Vicky has said, um, have been, you know, really suppressed and are not in these positions of power. Um, it is something to grieve. It's something to grieve, uh, first and foremost. Not that we can do this, but would you want to see the council of Nicaea undone? Like, would you make, would you want to kind of put these all together in a new, and then you find them all together. That's a big, big smile. Big ass. <laughs> you're, you're, you're incredible. Yes. I'm, actually holding, I'm actually holding a copy of A New New Testament, which includes <laughs> um, some of the Gnostics. And they did form a council to decide which ones. And they put them where they felt they went in chronological order. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is like the ultimate plug for exactly A New New Testament. But I would like it to be more than what they put in. Because they, they didn't include enough for me. That a number of scholars... Um, um, and like Barbara Brown Taylor, but Hal Talisic, Karen King, they came together in New Orleans and said like, all right, if we could just kind of undo the Council of Nicaea and put what we feel like is like the, the most relevant um, books that were left out next to the uh, canonical books, what would that collection look like? And that's a new New Testament. And uh, I'm just going to quote the Gospel of Thomas right here. Jesus said, blessed is the one who is disturbed by her discovery. That one has found life. So if you find mm. disrupting your Bible completely disturbing, well, mm. you have found life, friends. <laughs> so I actually want to touch on something that Vicky brought up earlier since we were talking about the Gospel of Mary. Um, and we sort of just glossed over it briefly, but um, Vicky, you had asked about the relationship between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Mm. Can we talk about that a little bit more? Because I'm even curious. I, I hadn't really looked into that, given my my fundamentalist background. Mary, again, like like you were saying, was like a prostitute, and even in fundamentalism, we're taught something similar. Do you have any uh, any insight or thoughts into that? If we go back to the Gospel of Mary text, at the very end, Peter is just hating on Mary. And Levi has to stand up and basically tell him to sit down and to remember that Jesus loved Mary more than the rest of them. So there is something, and this, and this uh, is echoed in other, quote, lost gospels, but there was something about the relationship between Jesus and Mary, a degree of closeness that obviously was very threatening to either the disciples at the time or at least the communities that formed around those disciples later on. Okay. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily close off the option of any kind of romantic relationship. Not that that, that, not that that's what I was fishing for. but I, the, the idea for me, this, this always bothered me, like the idea that Jesus was fully human but yet he didn't have sex. Mm. That has a problem. I have a problem. Yeah. I also have a problem with that. Because for me, you had to experience the full range of humanity. And right. if you didn't yeah. have sex, I'm sorry, you're not fully human. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, all you virgins out there. <laughs> oh my God. Vicky, I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I didn't too. know. I didn't know. Mike, <laughs> when are you, when are you guys, when's the, when's the date? <laughs> For what? For what? <laughs> For what? 
Okay. No, I'm yeah, no, like there, there's, there's <laughs> yeah. no way that you can really experience humanity without having sex. But like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. why would they write about? Like, why would they write about? Um, like Jesus could have, in theory, this is going to sound really heretical. Oh, but great, Jesus great, could, great. Jesus could have had, you know, multiple ladies that he was interested in. It doesn't have to just be Mary Magdalene. Just because she's held in high regard and they had like a really good relationship doesn't necessarily mean that like she was the only one or that they were um and intimate in that way um it could just mean that they were like best friends or um sort of like you know if if you've ever been in a really really good close relationship with someone that's your confidant that's Mm -hmm. the person that you have inside jokes with and like yes you have other friends and like you can have like a whole friend group but you might say something weird to that friend and everyone else kind of looks at you and it's like oh well what what um but i also it also brings up the question about um relationships um whether sexual or otherwise between men and women in the early church and in uh, ancient pre-semitic israel where the relationship between a man and a woman was a power dynamic of owning a woman uh so so anybody who was married was in possession of a woman and y- you almost wonder was Jesus trying to change that dynamic by developing a romantic or sexual relationship with somebody who wasn't his property but they didn't know how to write about that per se and this is all speculation but what if they didn't know how to write about that because it didn't fit the paradigm of a marriage all right but nobody's asking this about the gospel of john which refers to the beloved disciple are you asking whether Jesus was having a relationship with, with that fella? Yeah. Well, maybe with, he was. All I, I want to ask that all question. I is he spent a lot of time with guys. Right. He a did. Lot he had a time with guys. 12 guys. I'm not saying anything well, happened. Guys. Why are you doing, <laughs> that? Why are you doing that with your voice? We have to I'm have doing this. a thing. Right. No, and that's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm also saying, like, just because when, like, technically within the canon of the law in those times, if you own, if you were married to a woman, that means that she was your property. Doesn't necessarily mean that everyone was disrespectful towards women or right. there weren't those sorts of relationships that were like, yeah, technically, like, you have to be my property, but you're also my best friend and I see you as a human being. Like, there were probably a lot of men out there that didn't necessarily agree with the law but followed it because it was the law. Like, that was just what was accepted. But Jesus seems so rascally that it almost seems rascally. like he... Rascally. Yeah, no, no, no. That's, that's accurate. Rascally wabbit. Yeah. Rascally wabbit. He's a wascally wabbit. That's why, they, ki- that's why the, they killed him. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> he was wascally. But Nate, the issue that you're hitting on is so important, and it's a great transition into the acts of Paul and Thecla. Because in that mm. text, mm-hmm. Thecla is in the kind of situation where she's going to be in a marriage where she's going to be owned by a man. And she says, screw it, and leaves it, and then becomes a early follower of, of, of Jesus, but really an apostle. Yeah. Baptizes herself, dresses in men's clothing, yeah. and lives a fully independent life to try to transcend that kind of oppressive situation. Yeah. Do we know about Thecla? Is Thecla someone that kids are learning about in Sunday school? No, but there's there's shrines to Thecla that are Mm. all over the world. And in um, early Christianity, she was a big figure, but Mm. she's someone who has been forgotten because she hasn't been emphasized because it doesn't, um, it doesn't fit in with the kind of grand narrative that um, a patriarchal society wants to further. Yeah. And, and place this gospel in that context with that one makes, it makes perfect sense. You know, 
mm. that there needn't be that sort of rascally relationship going on. <laughs> and you see it all the time in different forms. I mean, it, but when you engage with the text, it seems like, and this is also an acts, but that women really had power within this early Jesus movement. And then irony isn't a good word because it's so much worse than that. But then the church, the institutionalized church becomes such an oppressor of women mm-hmm. when that's so different than what we find in something like the gospel yeah. of Mary or even acts yeah. where the whole thing is really driven by women in a lot of ways, yeah. at least monetarily. Yeah. It's driven by women. Interestingly, so even what, like, I know we keep bringing Mark up and he's not here to defend himself, but, you know, what Mark brought up in in the pub last night about how women are the majority in the church and they are leading a lot of the ministries, but the church as an institution has oppressed women. And part of that oppression, I I think, could be using women in order to drive this machine. You mean free labor is actually useful to the church? What are you talking about, Nate? <laughs> I don't, I don't know <laughs> no, you're totally you're you're totally right. And I think women, you know, just culturally and I said this last night, like we're more collaborative. We like mm-hmm. to work together, we like to help. We're helpers. We like to get things done and work behind the scenes yeah. and be in the kitchen and be the people that are setting things yeah. up and taking them down and 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 healing and teaching and doing that sort of work that no one else wants to do and and um yeah. it's it 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 works for us but at the end of the day um we end up being taken advantage yeah. a lot of a lot of times yeah because and, there isn't that competitive structure or right. that that competitive need that I think it was Don that was pointing out the biology of, of how testosterone doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily yield violence, but it... Um, testosterone produces winners, yeah. right? Yeah, Estrogen about- produces, like, you know, collaborative results. Right. Like, right. there's a lot more work getting done with mm-hmm. estrogen, and testosterone produces, like... I could be more collaborative than anyone in this room. I strongly disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, something- Kelly and I will work together to prove you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> something I thought was uh, was interesting, we talked about this um, when we had um, Shelly, our um, professional hockey player, on... And we were kind of talking about the difference between the men's game and the women's game, and how the men's game is often about uh, the strength of an individual's athleticism. Um, and the women's game seems to be more about how a unit, how a team can come together as a unit uh, and accomplish a goal. And that was fascinating. I know we're running down a tangent here. This is No, not keep going. Topic, I'm, I'm interested. But, I'm in it. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but I, I find that to be fascinating that like... Well, stop when Hitler's mentioned. Oh, no. <laughs> Godwin's law. <laughs> um, th- that I find interesting. The um, I don't know that collaboration seems to be something that that is lacking in the church at large. Yeah, often because men grasp for that office of 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 leader. Um, so, John, do you have any um, suggested uh, <laughs> uh, like? further readings um i know you gave us some in 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 the guide and if you just want to read what's at the end of uh at the end of the discussion guide that's cool too absolutely Um, but there's some some good material here to to look into yeah i I would start with elaine pagel's the gnostic gospels um (laughs) yes 
you know, it came out in the late 70s when the Nag Hammadi was first translated. But to me, it's still the very best introduction. And then I would also get, um, as we mentioned earlier, a new New Testament, uh, which is a collection of some of the most provocative and relevant um, extra canonical texts side by side with the 27 books of the New Testament. Okay. So those would be my first two. And then another Lane Pagels book that's just wonderful is Beyond Belief, mm. which is a deep dive into the Gospel of Thomas. Okay. Sounds good. Um, and then I'm going to put it, I'm going to put you in. Uh, oh, oh, one more. And I have to have a shameless plug. Um, <laughs> yes. There's a group called the Tanho Center that uh, Tanho is a Coptic word. These texts are originally um, in found in Coptic, which is an Egyptian language. And um, it means to keep alive. And this is a group of scholars and artists and faith leaders who um, are mostly utilizing art to um introduce these texts to folks um and we have a youtube channel with some short videos to check out natalie perkins took early christian psalms that are known as the odes of solomon and put them to blues music and she's amazing uh so please check that out uh the tanho center t-a-n-h-o tanho center okay and speaking of the tanho center um, you guys had a put out a YouTube video actually entitled "The Gospel of Mary," yes. that was narrated by uh, Doctor Althea Spencer Miller, who came to the pub a while back and, and she's incredible. With us. She's amazing, mm-hmm. and it was animated by a friend of ours. Yes, Eliz. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, is Elizabeth Honer. Yeah, so, and she's a fantastic animator. So um, that's definitely also worth checking out. I'm going to put you on uh, under the spotlight once more. Do you have a thought about why these texts are so important, maybe in like three or four sentences? To me, Jesus was about an open table. And if we're interested in understanding early Christianity and the movement, the Jesus movement, then it's worth engaging the voices uh, that arose during that period, particularly because they put women at the center, because they have a um, intuitive spirituality, and as we've talked about today, a real closeness with the earth. Hmm. Wow. So um, I guess with that, if you have anything left in your glasses, how about uh, a toast to to the closeness of the earth? <laughs> Cheers. Mm.